talking about how we're stewards of a sacred trust. First week we talked about the fact that we are uh, stewards and ultimately God is the owner of everything. Technically speaking, we don't own anything. Uh, we just manage that which God has loaned to us, as it were. Last week we saw that we are to be stewards of God's Word, which is precious beyond belief. And this morning we want to talk about how we're stewards of God's money. Luke 16. And he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I remove from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quietly, or excuse me, quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, this morning as we deal with this delicate issue of money, we ask that you will speak to us. Father, we have much to learn in this area. Father, I want to pray that we will be open to Your Word. May we have good hearts so that Your Word can land on good soil and bear much fruit in our lives. Fruit related to our money. Fruit related to true riches. So, Father, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote a novel called The Idiots. Uh, In that novel, one of the characters, Prince Mishkin, is the Christ figure, and he is thrust into a culture that is obsessed with wealth and a number of other vices. At one point in this novel, one of the character comments about the time that they were living, everyone is possessed with such a greed nowadays. 
They are all so overwhelmed by the idea of money that they seem to have gone mad. It is within that culture that Prince Mishkin stands out like a sore thumb. Of the prince, the narrator says, he did not care for pomp or wealth, nor even for public esteem, but cared only for the truth. In a personal letter, Dostoevsky himself said of the prince, my intention was to portray a truly beautiful soul. The prince has no pride, no greed, no malice, no envy, no vanity, and no fear. His behavior is so abnormal that the people do not know what to think of him. They trust him because of his innocence and simplicity, yet his lack of ulterior motives causes them to conclude that he is an idiot. Dostoevsky weaves the theme of money and other vices throughout the story, contrasting the spirit of the prince with all those around him. Of course, the real question posed throughout the novel is, who is the real idiot? The real idiot is the one who lives for money, serves money, and worships money. Think about that last line. The idiot is the one who serves money, lives for money, worships money. If I can be honest, that almost sounds like the American way, does it not? In 1967, college freshmen were asked whether it was more important to be well off financially or to discover a meaningful philosophy of life. The vast majority polled said it was more important to have a meaningful philosophy of life. Now, move the clock ahead almost 20 years, and a similar poll was taken in 1986. And in this poll, 80% responded that it was more important to be well off financially. In a mere 20 years, a complete paradigm shift happened from a life of a meaningful philosophy to a life of money. So I guess the only conclusion we can come to is that for most, money is the meaning of life. But of course, we are all the exception to the rule, right? Uh, we need to be honest. Um, this is the cultural air that we breathe. It's all around us, which means we do not escape from the values of our culture very easily. But this is nothing new. Jesus spoke about money and possessions more than any other issue except the kingdom of God. Now, why did Jesus address money and possessions again and again and again? There's many reasons, but let me just give you a few. Because it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Because the deceitfulness of riches can choke the word so that it doesn't bear any fruit in our lives. And because some people will actually wander away from the truth because of their love for money, and others will plunge their life into ruin and destruction because they want to be rich. And you know that we could go on and on and on with the reasons why Jesus addressed this issue. This is a big issue. It's a big issue for all of us. 
And it's an issue that we can't escape. Now, what's Jesus' antidote to this huge issue of money and possessions? In a word, the answer is shrewdness. Shrewdness. What does that mean, Jesse? You know what shrewdness means? No, he said, I don't know. Uh, shrewdness means, very simply, if I could give this definition, use money for your means. Don't allow money to use you. Use money to serve your interests. It's been said that money is a great servant, but a tyrannical master. Now, let me also interject here um, that shrewdness doesn't mean owning possessions. Doesn't mean that you can't own possessions. You've probably all heard that there's a huge difference between owning possessions and possessions owning you. Let me also say that there's a huge difference between those two, but sometimes there's a fine line between those two as well. But shrewdness doesn't mean that you can't have possessions, uh, but it does mean, I believe, we always have to be on our guard. We really do. We always have to be on our guard. I think every single one of us in this room has experienced the adrenaline rush of buying something new. And it doesn't have to be something big like a house or a car. Uh, it can be a new video game, kids. Wow, that's exciting. Uh, ladies, it can be something as simple as a new pair of shoes. Maybe I shouldn't just point out the ladies. Maybe guys have experienced that too. Huh? It can be the simplest things that we buy. It's just, this is exciting. We have to be careful. Jesus said the desire for other things, video games, Shoes can choke the word. We have to be careful. Furthermore, let me say that shrewdness doesn't mean laziness. Doesn't mean laziness. Uh, we are to work hard. Uh, this is nothing against being industrious. We are to be industrious. We are to work hard. And in fact, I think in our culture it's going to get a little harder. Um, I talked to a woman this year. She received her first paycheck and she said, wow, I, I noticed that they took more taxes out this year. I said, yeah, you went right over the fiscal cliff, didn't you? <laughs> that's, one, that's one of the realities. Uh, at our men's study, we were talking about the unemployment rates, the true unemployment rate. We said there's those who are on the rolls because we're receiving unemployment. But what about those who it's, it's run out for them, but they're still unemployed, but we don't have statistics for them. What is the real unemployment rate? And I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm guessing it's somewhere around 15%. Uh, but that's a tough environment. A lot of people are out of work. A lot of people are paying more taxes. People have been laid off. People are upside down on their homes. I guess I mention all that to say I'm realistic about the culture. And I also mention it because all this shrewdness means that we are to be wise in the culture in which we live and we're to look ahead. Um, this parable is about the manager who looks ahead. So shrewdness is about looking ahead. We are to evaluate our culture and see what's going on around us. Even if we're wrong in our evaluation, nonetheless, we're to be shrewd, we're to be wise, if you want a simple definition. And think about how to use our money. And many things come into play. It can be something as simple as college. Um, if you have one child, maybe $50,000 for, for college loans isn't that bad. But if you have five children, 50, 
thousand times five, that's a quarter million dollars, honey, isn't it? Uh, that's a lot of money. And in the Christensen household anyways, not an option. That, that's just, that's shrewdness for our family, and that means you have to think about, well, how are our kids going to get a college education? And it's important for us. It might not be important for you, but how, how are we going to bring that about? And again, we just have to think through the times. Uh, the times have changed. Um, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. Now, with that said, we want to look at this notoriously difficult parable, and then we're going to look at the four reasons that Jesus gives for why we should be shrewd. So let's start with the parable and we'll just quickly work through it. Verse 1, he said to his disciples, so he's talking to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. So we have a rich owner, we have a manager, the manager is wasting the possessions of the owner. Somehow the owner finds finds out about this. We're not given all the details of who brought charges against him. Uh, but apparently the charges stuck because the manager didn't refute the charges. Um, he just accepted the charges. So it seems that they are uh, le- legitimate charges. Verse 2, So the rich man called the manager in and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn the account of your management for you can no longer be my Manager, uh, Donald Trump may say something like, Manager, you're fired. Um, that's the simple paraphrase, he is out of work. Verse 3, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking away the management from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. Uh, by the way, this is a part of shrewdness. This is a part of wisdom, honestly assessing what you're able to do and what you're not able to do. Thinking through your gifts. And this is a not an easy thing always. Uh, it's amazing how out of touch people are with their gifts sometimes, isn't it? Uh, Michelle gives music lessons to, to many people and it's amazing how many people think they're going to be the next uh, star at the top of the charts. Um, it takes shrewdness and honesty to look at your gifts and to really accept, what am I good at? What, what can I do? And that's what this manager is doing. And then in verse 4, he says, I have decided what to do. Uh, we might say, I've got it. Uh, the light bulb goes off and he says, I know what I can do. So that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, to understand what he's saying here, we have to enter into the first century context. Uh, in the first century, um, hospitality was a big deal. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament as well, hospitality was a big deal and it was given. Let me give you just one example in Genesis 19 if you want to turn there. There's many, but I just want to give you... Um, couple of examples because this is going to come back a little later. Genesis 19. The context here is two angels coming to uh, Sodom and they're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, but this, this is the context. The two angels, and of course they didn't look like angels, they looked like men, came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom. 
When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed before him with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, my only point here is you'll notice they have strangers in the city gate. They have no place to stay. You notice that Lot didn't say, Hey, you know there's a hotel in town. If you would just go right down the street, you could stay there. Um, in this culture, it was assumed that you would bring complete strangers into your house. And I have to highlight this because this is very unusual for us. It would be very rare for us to do this. But this was done all throughout the Old Testament and it was done all throughout the New Testament. Do you know what the word hospitality literally means? Love of, anybody know? Strangers. Love of Strangers, And there's many examples of this in the Old Testament where people would be at the gate that have no place to stay. If you were a good, godly person in our context, if you were a good Christian, you would open up your home. You would be hospitable. Now, that's important to understand because you'll notice there's a huge assumption here. This manager is thinking, if I can help these people out... When I'm out of work after being fired, they're going to open up their home to me and I'll have a place to stay and they'll take care of me. That, that's just the assumption. And it's an accurate assumption based on the hospitality of the first century. So it continues on in verse 6. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, One hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. You just take that bill of yours and you just cross that out and you just put 50. And we're not told specifically what the response was, but I can imagine the person was saying, wow, thank you very much. (laughs) Be more than happy to make a little adjustment on my bill here. Thank you. And he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And this is where it gets complicated. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Okay, this is why people have a difficulty with this parable and stumble over it. Because what does it seem that the master is doing here? Commending a manager for being a sneaky, conniving, dishonest scoundrel, right? And, and we say, how can Jesus tell a parable like this? In some ways, maybe it gets worse because he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. In other words, disciples, you could learn a few things from this shrewd servant. And, and we're just kind of taken aback by that. Now, what are the possible interpretations here? Let me just give them to you briefly. I'm not going to go into all the details. Uh, one interpretation, and I read this in many commentators, is that what the manager was actually doing was crossing out the interest that the owner was charging. And that was wrong to charge interest because 
In the Old Testament, it was completely forbidden to charge interest or usury, a high rate of interest, to a fellow Jew. Today, we would say a fellow Christian. I think an application would be if your brother wants to borrow some money, give it to him, but do not charge him interest. That was against the Old Testament law. And some have said what this manager was doing is just crossing out the interest. So basically, we say, you know what, my owner's been dishonest. We're going to cross out that interest. That way, when the owner commends him, he's commending him for being honest, not for being dishonest. And then we can say, okay, I thought he's commending him for dishonesty. Another possible interpretation related to the first is that the extra charge, the interest charge, was the commission of the manager. So really, what he was doing was just foregoing his commission and saying, you know what, I'll just basically take a cut and pay. I don't need this commission. And then people would welcome him later. Then he's not doing anything dishonest. You, You can give up your own pay. There's nothing dishonest about that. Um. I'm not convinced uh, with either one of those interpretations. Uh, I think the simple problem is you'll notice that the master commended the dishonest manager. If he was doing something that was honest, he would have to be the honest manager and it's the owner who's dishonest. So I think it refutes the passage. I think um, it's really very simple. Uh, We're making it more complicated than it needs to be. Um, This manager was dishonest. That's what the master says. He was a dishonest manager. But, (laughs) I got to hand it to him. Even though he's dishonest, he sure was shrewd. Sure was wise in how he finagled his way out of a difficult situation. Now, isn't, isn't it easy to discern between what was dishonest and what you got to kind of hand it to them. They were really creative in what they were doing. Aren't, aren't we able to do that? Um, we think of somebody robbing banks and maybe they have some kind of elaborate scheme and kind of say, wow, that's kind of uh, creative if you think about it in a deceitful, thievery way. But we're, we're able to separate the two. Aren't we able to do that and say this part was right, this part was wrong? Um, the illustration I think of is uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, he was a Sunday school teacher. And one day, one of his students came to Sunday school. And this young boy um, obviously was in a fight because he had marks all over his face. And, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt asked him, he said, what happened? He said, this boy was picking on my sister. I beat him up. And Theodore Roosevelt said, Good job, and he and he took out a dollar out of his wallet and he, and he gave it to this to this boy. And the heads of the department of Sunday school found out about what he had done and they fired him. And they say, "How dare you encourage this boy to fight other boys? He should not have done that." What was Roosevelt doing? He was saying, "Well, he did something right. It's good that he stood up for his sister. Aren't you glad about that? Yeah, he probably shouldn't have punched the kid out. That probably wasn't necessary." But aren't we able to separate the behavior and say this was right, this was wrong? And in this case, Theodore Roosevelt wanted to commend the boy because he at least did something right. Um, We are able to do that. And I think we can do that very easily in this parable. Um, The master is commending the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. We would have a problem if it was reversed. If the master was commending the shrewd manager for his dishonesty, 
But that's not what we have. He's commended for his shrewdness. So I think if we just understand that, um, I don't think we have a great difficulty with the passage. Now, Jesus is using this parable to challenge his disciples to be more shrewd. To be honestly shrewd, but to be more shrewd. To say, why don't you plan ahead like this guy did? Think about how you're using your money. Come on, you're sons of light. And that's an interesting description. He calls them sons of light. In other words, you're not in the dark. You have light. You should be able to see how you can use your money. And if dishonest people of this world can be shrewd, certainly my people in the kingdom can be shrewd with how they're using their money. So that's Jesus' challenge. He wants His disciples to be more shrewd. And then I believe in the verses that follow, He gives four reasons for why they should be more shrewd. The first is, if you are shrewd with your money, you will be welcomed by friends in eternity. If you are shrewd with your money, you will be welcomed by friends into eternity. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or worldly mammon, so that when it fails, I believe that simply means when you die, it's no longer of any use to you, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus is not saying in a crass way, use money uh, to buy friends. That's not what He means. What He means is use your money in such a way so that you can build up the kingdom. So that unbelievers can come to Christ and become your friends. So that people in the ministry perhaps, can be aided in what they're doing. And they will thank you in eternity. They will welcome you into their homes. They will welcome you into eternal dwellings. So the picture here is when we get to our heavenly, eternal home, people will be in heaven waiting for us to welcome us and they will thank us for our generosity. And I know many of you have heard this song, but this song came to mind and I think it really does describe it um, in a very creative way. Um, Ray Bolt, thank you for giving to the Lord. This is what he writes. I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We walked beside the streets of gold, beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw this young man. And he was smiling as he came. And he said, friend, you may not know me now. And then he said, but wait. You used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Then another man stood before you and said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took that gift you gave and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came, far as the eye could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth in heaven, now proclaimed. I think that captures very well what Jesus is saying here. Um, when you give to the kingdom work, you will be rewarded. Nothing is overmitted. Nothing is overlooked. You will be rewarded for every single 
thing you gave. Even a simple cup of cold water in the name of Jesus will be rewarded. Nothing goes unnoticed. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we need to be shrewd in the use of our money by having an eternal perspective. Thinking not just about the bills, and of course we have to think about the bills, but also to think about heaven as well. Second, Jesus says that we are to be shrewd because the one who is faithful with a little will be faithful with much. Verse 10. Very simply, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little, is also dishonest and much. And we've seen this before. We saw this a couple weeks ago in Luke 19, verse 17, when we were talking about being stewards of the mina. Jesus said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You who have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And then in Luke 19.26, Jesus said, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not had, even what he has will be taken away. So if you are faithful in very little, God will entrust more to your care. And we need to realize that we're being tested with the very little that we have. Um, Often, uh, when it comes to tithing, people will say, boy, if I win the lottery, Pastor, I'd be more than happy to give 10% to the church. I don't, I don't say this, but let me tell you what I want to say. What I think of saying. If you can't give a dollar now out of $10, you will not give $10 out of 100 You will not give 100 out of 1000 You will not give 1000 out of 10,000 and you will not give 100,000 out of a million. Never happen. He was faithful in little, will be faithful in much. We think, well, if God would just pour out the blessings upon me, then I'd be a generous person. No. No. It has nothing to do with the amount. It has to do with our, our faithfulness. God's calling us to be faithful. Let's think about what God has given to us and faithfulness. Next reason why He tells us to be wise stewards is so that you can be entrusted with true riches. Verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? That is powerful to me. If I can just speak personally, this is one of the verses that motivates me more than any other verse to want to be a wise steward of my finances. Notice what God says. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, or mammon, literally, that's just wealth and possessions, who will entrust to you true riches? Once again, we're talking about a test But now the test is a little more specific. The test of money and possessions. If you pass that test, what will God entrust to you? True riches. What are true riches? Greater opportunities to share your faith with others. Greater opportunities 
for ministry, uh, a greater understanding of God's Word, uh, greater glimpses of God's glory, more manifestations of His power being unleashed in your life. I think we could go on and on. Saying if, if, if you handle money appropriately, then you'll be entrusted with true riches. So again, we have, we have a test before us. And then finally, we need to be shrewd with our money. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches here because you cannot serve two masters. Verse 13, No servant... Literally, the word is slave. No slave can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you're a slave, you can only have one master. Now, that master can rent the slave out to someone else, but you can only have one master. Only one master can own you. And what Jesus is saying here is that God has to have your complete allegiance. You cannot serve money like you do God. You know what the the danger is here? Money has many of the characteristics of deity. Think about that. What, What can money do? Money can do many things that God can do. Money can pay your bills. Money can buy some pleasures that you would like to have. Money can rule the world in some ways, right? We need to be honest. There is a lot of power attached to money. There really is. We, we can sing about certain things that money can't buy. But let's also be honest. There are a lot of things that money can buy. And... Money has an attraction. Money has a pull, a lure that none of us is immune to. None of us. We need to be honest. If we don't have money, we're out in the street at the very least. Again, we cannot be totally detached from money. But it's one thing to use money. It's another thing to serve money. We are to serve God, not money. And trust that as we serve God, He will provide for us. And is that always easy? That's not always easy. And I'll just tell you right up front, it's not easy for me. So I'm, I'm not pointing any fingers. I, I got fingers right back here. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Luke's calling for commitment like he does all throughout his gospel. You need to trust God completely. Now, what's fascinating is that you remember in verse 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. But while he's directly talking to his disciples, like with many parables, you have like these concentric circles. So you have the disciples that are gathered around him. But then you'll have the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders will be there, and then the crowds will be there as well. Jesus is talking to his disciples. 
the parables for the disciples, the applications for the disciples, but the Pharisees are eavesdropping on the conversation. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Why did they ridicule him? Luke tells us, because they were lovers of money. Now, this is what I want to say. Check your heart. Check your heart. Is your is your hearingness? How is your heart responding? Anybody getting upset? Pay attention to your hearts and your responses. It really does say something about where our heart is at. Jesus is giving us advice about money, and if we don't like the advice that He's given, if we're bucking against the advice that He's given, that that communicates something. And even our fears related to money. We've got to pay attention to that. Why, why are we afraid when the money doesn't come in? I, I was reading one book and, and the author made a good comment. He says, when, when we fear, we, often, we like to stifle that fear. You know, who, who wants to live in fear? You know? We all want to live fearless life, so if we're, we're afraid. But he said, but we should pay attention to our fears because it communicates something about our hearts. When, when we're afraid about money and not having enough money, what does that say about our hearts? And here's what I think it often says. Again, if we can just be honest, it often says that we really are trusting money more than we think. It's real easy to say, I'm trusting God, God's providing for me. And then we have a big bill, the layoff comes, and then all of a sudden, Lord, where are you? <laughs> right? Again, this, this, this is tough. This is tough. And I'm, I'm not denying tough situations. I, I know. I know about, even in just this congregation, I know about the, the layoffs and the illnesses and the bills and being upside down in your house and, and all that. But at the same time, maybe God's doing us a favor. Maybe God's saying, I want you to see where your heart is. I want you to see where your trust is. And I think God wants to bring many of us through a difficult process so that on the other side we can see, you know what? God really does provide. Before it was lip service, but I went through a difficult... God really does provide. God wants to show Himself faithful on our behalf. God really will meet all our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And God wants us to work through that difficulty so we can come to the place and say, let God be true and every man a liar. God really can be relied upon. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that Your Word is not silent on uh, the difficult and the delicate issue of money. Probably uh, no issue more personal and sensitive than money. Father, help us all to be the shrewd stewards that You're calling us to be. Father, give us an eternal perspective. Help us to be faithful with the little that we have. Help us to see that we're being tested. And Father, help us to put our trust ultimately in You. May we know that we have a Father in Heaven who takes care of the needs of His people. May we serve You. May we love You. 
May we devoted, be devoted to you and may we use money in appropriate, God-glorifying ways. In Christ's name, amen.